Telling you, bro. What's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more Peggy O's. Hi, my name is Shane Terrio, and welcome to the Rip Rap. Stories and insights from the front lines. My guest today is Mr. Will Lee. What can you say about Will Lee that hasn't already been said? I mean, he's one of the most recorded bassists of all time. He's appeared on over 1,000 records. He hit the ground running in New York City after landing the gig with Dreams with the Brecker Brothers and Billy Cobham at age 18, and he hasn't stopped since. He's a really talented singer and sang on many jingles that you probably didn't even realize was him singing. And even if you haven't heard Will on records, which is highly unlikely, I'm sure it's not possible, you've undoubtedly seen him in your living room night after night as a member of the world's most dangerous band on Late Night with David Letterman, a gig he held for a stunning 30 years. Will's a really positive and forward-thinking person, as you'll hear. His enthusiasm for music and his love for the Beatles is fully evident. In this interview, I asked Will a lot of questions. He provides some great and oftentimes amusing answers, too. We talk about the scene in New York City, then and now, Steve Gadd, Hiram Bullock, the Beatles. He demonstrates some grooves. We play the late-night theme together, Jocko, Steely Dan sessions, and much, much more. Oh, and we do a quite a bit of jamming at the end. There was so much great stuff in this that I decided to include a bit of bonus material at the end if you're so inclined to keep listening. And there's some really beneficial advice Will shares for musicians. I'm walking over to Will's now, go up to his beautiful apartment, killer studio, bases everywhere, Beatles memorabilia everywhere. All right, here we go. I sit down with my guitar and Will hands me a pretty unusual oh, guitar game to plug into. Is it custom made for, for Paul Schaefer? No, this one's custom made for uh, Biff Henderson. Oh, that's even better. Riff <laughs> your house you know of course you're comfortable <laughs> yeah man you know there are podcasts and there are podcasts but there's only one riffraff with shane terrio that is gentlemen now wait a minute you did some prep work where you thought about that all right well hey man thank you for, again for uh for doing this my I pleasure yeah. and thank you for doing it at 2 30 which i which you thought was a, a funny time it makes it makes sense to me i've had a lot of dental work done so tooth hurdy <laughs> Oh, I see. Kind of feels like at at home to me. I thought fourteen thirty was more. You know, that's very funny. cool, but you, that's a military. Yeah, it kind of makes me think I'm in the navy. <laughs> which is all right. In the navy. <laughs> Man, I don't even know where to start. You know, it's like as soon as you, I walk in here and see your all your amazing bases and all the memorabilia, and I don't even know where to start. We're sitting in Will's. This is your studio basically a Beatles museum <laughs> it is that's the name of the you studio, have every actually. lunchbox to in chronological order proper Beatles album order looks like yes all the albums are represented by a lunchbox including 
There's another one that was the original sort of Beatle fan item. And that's why this is called the Beatles Museum, by the way. I, can, I, can I was always put it fascinated together. by the amount of merch that, you know, you attach the Beatles name to and, and you would have, you'd feel like you had a piece of the Beatles, you know. Yeah. The Beatles didn't get a piece of the merch uh, <laughs> profit, but uh, that didn't, the fans had a good Nobody got hip to that until uh, probably Bill Graham and Grateful Dead. <clears throat> and Kiss, for sure. Oh, Kiss, yeah. Yeah. They've got a huge merchandise business going. I mean, it's yeah. unbelievable with those guys. They've got they've got pinball machines, more than one, multiple ones. There's a new one. They've got. Uh, I, I asked Gene Simmons, "What's the strangest? What's the most amazing Kiss merchandise that's out there?" He said, "Well, there's uh, the coffin. <clears throat> there's the urn, and then he showed me." a hundred new products that are just out in Japan where Hello Kitty and Kiss merged and, and did a thing, you know? Wow. With all these, the Kitty wearing Kiss makeup stuff. It's, it's incredible. That makes sense. I, I could see that. Gene probably owns the trademarks on everything. I heard he trademarked Ace Frehley's likeness, name and likeness, and owns His it. name. He owns it, yeah. Is Ace Frehley is owned Ace. By, by Gene Simmons. That's what I've heard. Like you know, it's a lawyer's world we live in. And he tried to trademark OJ, the letters OJ, like orange juice. He did. Almost got away with it. That's incredible. I don't know if that's actual I'm gonna, truth or I'm, not. I'm going I'm to trademark that's incredible just in case. <laughs> I already have that's incredible.com. I've, I've got that domain Do you really? name. No, not at all. <laughs> I'm not one of those kind of guys. We met uh, a few years ago. But we got to play a couple times a little bit. Did we run into each other backstage at a Styx concert? No. No? We ran into each other backstage at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Awards. You were playing in the house band. Yeah, we did most of those. Yeah. Yeah, we we probably... God, how many have there been? I mean, I think we've done 25, 26, 27 of those. And it's been kind of a thrilling ride because when you look back and, and see people that are... You know, they were legends then, and they're and they and they've been gone a long time since. Yeah, just it's. I mean, you can't even. You know, it's. You, you look at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum and see all the people that are in there, and those are the people that we played with, basically. Yeah, well, you you're you've done you've played with pretty much everybody, man. But you know what I was thinking when when we set this interview up was the day we ran into each each other at the the hat shop our mutual friend Jennifer's hat store and you were saying Jennifer Willett amazing yes amazing milliner. amazing hats I, I recommend highly and you were saying man you should come out Monday night I'm playing with Oz and Bernard Purdy and you said Oz Oz North great guitar player said uh, I want to do all this boogaloo stuff and you told me well I told Oz well you know who played on all those records it was me and Bernard not all those records, but the records lot. that he was focusing on at the time. Like some of them were like Dr. Lonnie Smith. Dr. Lonnie know? Smith. Okay, that, that's what I was thinking of. And then when I left that night, I was thinking, Will could not possibly be old enough to play. Like, it's unbelievable your discography. I mean, anybody that knows, you know, musicians know who you are. They know common knowledge. But the depth of um, everybody you played with, it's pretty mind-blowing. Well, it's 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 being in New York, you know, a huge part of that. That's that's really number one. It's just being mm -hmm. there and available and and having people recommend you, of course. And I, when I first got to town, I, I thought I was going to leave after the band that I came to join, which was called Dreams. Yep. 
with Billy Cobham and the Brecker Brothers and Don Grolnick and Bob Mann and all these amazing musicians. And I thought, um, well, that the band is ending, so I'm going to go back to Miami. And I had two friends that were associated with that band. One of them was Bob Mann, and his, his housemate at the time was Alan Schwartzberg, this wonderful drummer who were involved with the studio world to the point where I had seen some sessions happen. And quite frankly, I, I had never dreamed of being a part of the scene because I had looked at it and seen how sewn up the whole deal was. And I thought, okay, this is something this is really incredible. This is something that there's probably a huge, of course, there's a huge waiting list for people to get into this world. And I'm not in on the list. So I've never even aspired for one second to be a part of it because I thought that's, I see how this, how sewn up this mm-hmm. is. And I was ready to leave town at the end of the dreams run. And these guys, Bob Mann and Alan Schwarzberg, who shared a house up in Nyack, said, no, you're not leaving. We're going to get you. You're going to stay at our house and we're going to get you work. And I thought, sure enough, they started getting me gigs. I got on this singing and playing commercial that Bob Mann was the arranger for, for Kentucky Fried Chicken. And next thing you know, I was part of that particular jingle house, which was huge at the time. Mm -hmm. Susan Hamilton was the producer for it. Hermony Dell Associates, H-E-A. And I was singing this commercial, and I guess I did good enough that they asked me to sing another one and play another one, and then then another one and another one and another one. And I had guys who were mentors in the studio because I was very naive and very wide. I didn't know what I was doing, really, but I was had a little reading skills, and when everybody else was outside joking around, I was inside penciling in the note names on the on the musical scores so I would know, you know where to put my fingers on <laughs> the when the guy counted it yeah. off and the click started running and some really encouraging drummers, Bill Lavornia, who used to p- play with Liza Minnelli was on a lot of these really great, super musical reading sessions that for that particular house, mm-hmm. jingle house and another guy named Ronnie Zito. And those guys were between those guys, you know, if you're a bassist, your biggest ally and you're sat, always sat next to is the drummer. Sure. Yeah. in these situations. And those are the guys who were the most encouraging because they could be. They were the proximity of where we were sitting next to each other. And I'd be like, well, what, what do you do? And he, well, you just follow me, kind of, you know. And then I learned that the reason that I was able to get into the studio world in the first place it w- was because of avail- availability. You know, I was just the guy who had nothing else going on, but I was starting to get a little name for myself and the the fact that I was available was a big deal. That was a big part of it because the reason I was slotted into these sessions was that somebody else couldn't make it. Mm. When I when I figured that out, I thought, well, nobody's ever going to know that I'm unavailable for a session. So I would do things like we got on the road with Bette Midler for her first national tour. Mm-hmm. Barry Manilow was the musical director, was her musical director. I would get a call for a jingle while we're out somewhere in, in the middle of America, and I would say yes and i would fly back <laughs> wow for this 30 minute thing and then get my ass back out there in middle america for the, for that night's bet middler show you know cuz i didn't want anybody to think for one second that i was out of town even then there was a stigma of road guy and touring versus studio and once well, they call you once or twice and you're not available then that's it right yeah, you're off the list either you're, or you, you move know, down the list yes oh he, we let's, let's not use him anymore he's moved to brooklyn you know, mm-hmm. so if A, you had to be in Manhattan and B, you had to be, you had to be able to do something in, on a, in a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. 
So basically, that meant you had to have a two one two phone number. But you know, even even those, even having those qualities, I mean, you're, there's a lot of things like your sight reading ability on base. How, did you have the sight reading chops when you first moved to New York, or did you? I mean, yeah, you were probably a good reader when you moved. Here, well, I had right? been a trumpet player and, okay, and so majored there, there in there French horn right there in yeah, college. So I knew that I knew the the, the note values, and yeah. for bass, it was still I was still getting my way around bass clef. Yeah, but I would take the time, like I said before, to to pencil those note names in. You know, I mean, a lot of these we're talking about uh, sometimes thirty second pieces of music. Yeah, you know, especially with the jingle stuff, but the but the record stuff, a lot of it wasn't reading. You know, and you are also allowed to make your own kind of chart. Yeah, it's you, more creative. You you have to pull from your own creativity and sure. Know. And of course, my own creativity, besides the fact that my parents were were amazing jazz musicians, which gave me a, a sense of feel from from day one, was the fact that you know I had listened so uh, frequently to 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 my record collection. You know, and I was really married to being in my room. And putting on Steve Miller's Brave New World album, or you know whatever Motown stuff was going on, and of course, and above all, the Beatles stuff. Mm-hmm. It, I, I should have a wristband made. What would the Beatles do? You know, because that was the kind <laughs> yeah, of thing. Yeah, it's such a huge part of. Yeah, no matter yeah. what kind of music we're talking about, whether it was gospel or, or country or R and B or just rock and roll or anything, the Beatles always had some information for me to feed mm-hmm. feed from. If it was a legit, you know, big band sounding thing, I could all, I could refer to to when I'm 64, you know, mm-hmm. or any of those sort of more legitimate Paul McCartney, you know, compositions and stuff. But they all gave me a reference point to bounce off of, and it's sort of been the underlying thread throughout my entire career is the Beatles, basically. interesting it's a and you hear it nowadays if you hear something on the radio every other song people pulled from the beatles the drum sounds the bass parts the wolfy bass things the yes they changed everything you know they changed all of pop music yeah 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 they you know they took a huge right turn with pop music way back when things were pretty fairly kind of black and white as compared to the colors that they added to the to the sonic spectrum for us well, let's go back and talk about dreams. Is it true that did Randy Brecker hook you up with that audition, or how did you? I mean, because you were like what, nineteen years old? I was eighteen. Eighteen, in Miami, University of Miami, where your dad was the dean of music, right? Yep, University of Miami. Yeah, dean. yeah, for like twenty Pretty years. Pretty fertile ground back then, probably right. There were uh, a lot of great musicians back then. Yeah, I mean, he was responsible for getting guys like Pat Metheny into the. Into, into the school you know he actually literally went to a club in kansas city and heard pat's play and said how would you like a scholarship to the university of miami and he said i love it but i couldn't afford it and he goes well yes you can because i've given you one right wow. now you know that's the kind of guy my dad was wow. 
Um, it was pretty fertile, you know. Uh, we were experimenting with a lot of things back then, if you know what I mean. A lot of chemistry. <laughs> you know, we were teenagers, so we were looking into okay. So what do you what do you ingest? What can I ingest next into my body to get myself completely altered? And uh, meanwhile, a big part of my 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 musical life was was dictated by the fact that I was playing rock and roll in clubs at night and studying jazz at the university in the daytime. So for me, when the band Dreams hit the scene, uh, of all the sort of horn jazz rock bands that were out, and that would include Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, you know, all the offshoots like Lighthouse and uh, mm -hmm. Ides of March or whatever, there was this, this band Dreams that had a particularly special level of musicianship, you know, between Mike Brecker and, and Randy and, and Billy Cobham and these guys what you heard was something that was really such a great mix of of pop and and jazz you know in one place at one time that for my little world which was that in between place for instance i love when people in the jazz world think i'm a rocker and people in the rock world think i'm a jazzer <laughs> i just love yeah. that you know i hate to be pinpointed oh he just does that one thing um those people in my life you know that were big dreams fans to the point where i thought maybe the Dreams were like the next Beatles, you know. They were huge in our lives. Mm, yeah. And therefore, I knew their music like backwards and forwards. So when I came up to audition, I got, had got this call from Randy Brecker saying, can you come to New York and, and audition for this band Dreams? And I was like, how does he know about me? And it turns out that a guy who had guest lectured at the university one day gave, you know, jammed we jammed together and he goes back and tells these guys about this kid in miami that he that he thinks would be great for the band dreams because they were losing their their bassist chuck rainey at the time wow thank god i didn't know who he was <laughs> um or i would never have taken a chance so i go up i nail the audition and now i'm now i'm a new york guy all of a sudden and i'd never thought about new york for five seconds you wow. know i was fair i was in eight bands at what the was time that in day miami. like the audition where you you say you nailed it so you mustn't have been that nervous if you were you nervous um i was nervous up until the very moment that billy cobham counted it off and started to play at that point i was just floating yeah because i had never experienced anything like what that felt like i mean i was used to be kind of being the timekeeper in bands you know like stomping my foot yeah yeah twice as hard as anybody else on stage to try to keep things moving along at the right pace, you know? But with Billy, there was nothing for me to do. Wow. And the fact that I sang was a plus for those guys because Clive Davis, record company president, was pressuring them to be more commercial and wanted to, you know. Sure. So the idea that I sang was like, ooh, he sings, you know? Yeah, a little icing. <laughs> yeah, a little extra. And then, so you, you get the gig and, and, man, all your friends in Miami must have just been won the lottery or something. Oh, Yeah. All of a sudden, I was this really important guy who made it. <laughs> Isn't that funny, man? The way people perceive things. It There's is. There's something it's... they can attach something to. I mean, you you played the exact same as you did the day before, but you know, all of a sudden, you're a cat. You know. Yeah. Now I have a really hip place to put my my talents to yeah. use. Yeah. yeah. So that was really fun. Oh. 
Now you you you've played with, um, let's see, Paul McCartney. You played with George Harrison. You played with. I don't know if you played with John Lennon. Uh, I did, but he wasn't in the room at the same oh, time. Oh, okay. It was on Imagine Ringo's or, record. Oh, Ringo's, Ringo's album. All right. And well, that almost counts. So kind of. John come, was, had played his keyboard part already. Wow. On, and then I came in and overdubbed bass. I mean, to come from Fort Worth, Texas, man, and be, you know, obviously you're so super passionate about the Beatles and then to have worked with all of them and what, regardless of whatever capacity, pretty amazing. And the story you just told me about the bass, you know, with McCartney and... I don't know if you want to talk about that on here. I haven't made that public, but yeah. I just but you don't I have recently yeah. was you, able to give Paul a, a, a bass, which he needed. And, you know, t- for for me to give him something, for him to need something from me is like unbelievable. You know? Yeah. So That's that was really such a beautiful pretty, thing, man. Beautiful he's, bass. He's a beautiful human being. Unbelievable. I mean, I can't say enough words about Paul McCartney. Yeah. You know. Hey, I uh, don't know anybody that's been, been able to do that, play bass and... There's a few people, Jim Keltner maybe. I mean, it's not a lot of people, man. That's it's uh And then the discography. I mean, I it's this is a difficult one cuz there's so much stuff you've done, man. I mean, In the words of Joe Walsh, life's been good. Yeah, so far. I would say. So I'd rather ask you like some other crazy shit because people ask you <laughs> I you like know, crazy it's shit. It's all been it's all been documented many times. But um you know, is it true that you went to play on Stratus, and you ended up not playing on Stratus. Is that true? It's one of the that's got to be the only time that's ever happened in your whole career. Well, you know, at the time, let me think about this. How this happened? I think Billy Cobham was still in dreams for for that moment before he completely. God, I may be wrong about this. He might have left dreams at this point. I think he had left dreams. And had started working with Mahavishnu Orchestra, mm-hmm. and we went in the studio. He said, uh, "He said I'm trying to get a record deal. Can you come in and record some tunes with me?" And he had asked Jan Hammer and John Abercrombie also. So we go in and we record four songs, and they were burning. And wow. it was Stratus, and it was Tarian Matadori, and another song called Quadrant Four, and one yeah. other song that I can't mm-hmm. remember. And I had the tapes for the longest time. I, I don't know what happened to it, but um, so that's the tape that got him the deal with Atlantic Records. And he said, "Can you, you know, I got the deal. We're going to record so at, in so on such such and such a week, on such and such a month." And I thought, "This is great. I can't wait till he tells me exactly when. I'll put it in my book, and we'll do the thing, and it'll be great." So, just by coincidence. I lived close to Electric Lady Studio, and every once in a while I would pop in and say hello to to Lords, the girl who uh, who I think eventually married Mark Knopfler, but she mm. uh, was the studio receptionist at the time. And um, I would just love to see what's going on over there because I knew one of the house, a, a guy who worked there a lot, engineer Ron, uh, um, anyway, uh, Ron, who, who, who pre-Kiss was... Uh, was trying to get Kiss a record deal. They were called Wicked Lester. He never got them the deal, but he tried. Ron Johnson. And uh, so back in Studio B, they would be working in Studio A. What's going on in A? Hey, let me open the door. Open the door. And Billy Cobham is recording these songs with Mm -hmm. another band, except Jan Hammer is there. Different guitar player, different bass player. And I was like, I crushed. I was completely crushed. Like, like what what did I do wrong? You Mm -hmm. know? 
And I didn't talk to Billy for 20, 30 years. Wow. After that, I was just couldn't even look you at never him. Got a couldn't reason even think why. about him. Huh? You never got a reason why, Ernie? I still don't understand what it was, oh. you know. But whatever it was, it's gone. And um, I don't know what the politics of, of all these things that happen are. You know, I don't know if it was uh, somebody had a friend in, in the basis that that ended up doing the record. He and I are great friends, but mm-hmm. it was Lee Sklar. Mm-hmm. Who knows back then? Yeah, man. who knows? Whatever. It could have been, could have been a record company thing. It could have been whatever. But I'm fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one record. I mean, yeah, I played with all the Beatles, but you know that one thing. Did you ever think about? Did you have you ever counted how many episodes of uh, Letterman show you did between talking? NBC and CBS? I wish I knew the number. I'm sure it's that's well documented too, but I don't know. It's in the five, six, nine thousands. <laughs> I don't know. Somewhere between five and nine thousand. I don't know. And you would show up. I actually played on the show a couple of times uh, with guest artists and stuff, uh, you know, come in, do the little song and leave. And it was always freezing cold in there, man. It was Frozen. Freezing cold, you know. Yeah, we actually had to lobby for like about six years before we finally got some heaters over really? us. Really? So and it's crazy because just, think about the horn players. Yeah, trying you know, to keep every things in day, tune. A guy like Tom Malone walks in and he's got like a, he's got a trumpet behind him. He's got a, some saxophones, some flutes and a trombone and he's got to pick each one up like spontaneously while it's cold and just play music on the thing in this temperature situation that's kind of impossible i mean i've heard a lot of string players complain because strings were always situated back where it was the coldest oh. in that room toward the back <laughs> of the stage makes sense. <laughs> that's where the, all that cold air was coming from at one point yeah. our uh, our techie mike ferrante had um Guitar picks printed up. They had the Late Show logo on one side. You flip it over, it said 47 degrees. <laughs> 47 and the little degree sign. I wish I had one of this. I might actually have a huge pick collection, which I'm very proud of. Someday I'm going to figure out a way I to I think I have it. one of your picks. It says Uncle Will on the back. I don't remember where I got it from. I've had it for years. The original, the original incarnation of that band was you, Steve Jordan, and Hiram, right? Mm-hmm. Hiram yeah. Mullock. That was a lot of people love that band. Yeah, I mean, well, that was the band that had been the 24th Street band. Right. So yeah. that that was a ready-made band. So Schaefer just kind of brought us in, and we kind of knew what to do immediately. Which was great because because the t- the moment that that he and that he informed us that, that that there was a show to do and can we be a part of it was one week before the whole thing started. Wow. Well, let's get together and learn some songs then. You know, and we got together that night and started hitting it. You know, started. Like, now, how learning. long had you been in New York at that point when that gig when you landed that gig that ended up being a thirty-year oh, run for you? That was uh, I'd been here for. That was my 11th year in town because I came here in 71 and that was mm-hmm. February of 82 when that happened. But I, I got to learn how to do a bunch of stuff. I mean, we we had uh, a quartet and we were trying to get close to the records. So we would do, we would end up having to do stuff like, you know, we were trying to play, we were trying to make it sound complete so we would have to go. Ah. Uh, 
why you know. would you why would you do that just to add more well, meat to the to no, the arrangement? It, on the record, there's an actual bass part that goes. One, yeah. one, once the song goes yeah. gets started, right? But the bass voice keep going. Do 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 cover. Yeah, we didn't, we weren't singing. We were just an instrumental band at the time, so we had to figure out ways to do things like uh, I had to figure out things like uh, I don't know if you ever listened closely to to Lou Reed's "Walk on the Wild Side," yeah. but there's yeah. two basses, and one bass is going like. Uh, Right. Yeah. And one one bass is going. The thirds. Are... So I had to figure out how to go. Ah. Right. Oh, sorry, I'm sitting in a weird position. So that was there was. I didn't realize like there was a contrary motion thing going. Yeah. On. I thought it was just. Yeah. Two upright basses. I thought it was just these. You know, thirds. No, if you listen, it's it's got that contrary cool. motion. So you know, we had to fill, figure out ways of filling in the blanks as a quartet because we were really trying to go for stuff. And and a lot of the stuff that we ended up doing in those early days ended up being like uh, like trying to find an ending for a Beatles song, for example. A lot of that stuff actually transferred itself over into Fab Faux mm-hmm. with the Beatles band that I have. Then we tried to figure out how to get out of a song, and sometimes it would come in handy to uh, to use Paul Schaefer's endings for stuff and one of the great ones one of the really fun ones was that he had us all learn the the tax the the paul mccartney tax band solo right (laughs) yeah uh what and that's how we would end the song and i tried i tried i lobbied and lobbied to try to get fab voted to to do the to do that as an ending, but but they talked me out of it. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, so kind of talking what you're saying, like just having fun with the gig and it was fun taking and, chances. And, and it was fun because Paul Schaefer allowed me so much freedom, and he never made me play the theme twice the same ever. He's you know he just let me do anything I wanted to with it, as long as it kind of established a little. Some kind of a shuffly thing, kind of, yeah. Because it started out, his concept was okay. Well, the show comes on at one, at twelve thirty at night at the time, in the early days. That's pretty late, so we got to make it a little sleepy. It can't be too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> hey, everybody! It's party time! Come on, wake up, get out of bed. It was more like, okay, we're going to ease you yeah. into your evening. So it's. Yeah, some slinkier, yeah. yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so once we kind of were, were able to establish any kind of a thing, he, we would, uh, let's see, say the groove was like... Uh, right? So once once we got that, you know, we established what that was. I could I could I could play uh, if I wanted to play um, "Sex Machine" by by Sly and the Family Stone underneath that. Yeah. 
Right. Sorry, I don't want <laughs> Any whatever yeah, I could man, dream of, words, you know, right. it's just like silly or stupid yeah. or fun or cool or corny. It was all good as long as it grooves, which it always does. had some good drummers you know we started with steve and then steve left and we got anton and and my big anton discovery was in the studio with him with with ace fraley doing that first uh his the solo, solo record which uh was a huge wake-up call like who is this guy you know and why is he talking so funny of course it was exciting eddie kramer was was the engineer slash producer yeah. of that record we were there was a studio called plaza that was right above radio city and during their breaks, the, the Rockettes would like peer through the window at us like like we were huge rock stars. I mean, there I was with Ace Frehley. So, so I guess in a way we sort of were because he was, you know, Kiss was so huge. Wow, man. Yeah. So I felt like, you know, one tiny iota of what the Beatles must have felt like at the moment that they were recording She Loves You, you know, where Abbey Road was surrounded by screaming, you know, babes. Out that's of all why the, I got into music. <laughs> that's why all, everybody gets into music. Every mm. every teenage boy, I think. Now you and Steve Gadd have a long, long, long history. Yeah. yeah. Well, Steve is a cool a cool customer. Yes, we've been through it and that came out alive, and yeah, and now we're living. How many records <laughs> do you think you and Gadd have done? Man, Hundreds. I have no idea. Not nearly enough for my taste. He's one of those guys that I was. Bouncing around in the waves down in St. Bart's the other day with with a guy who's an, another a fellow another drummer Doug Yole and I was telling him the story of you know I was I was just kind of posing this universal question what is it about Steve Gad what is it with Steve Gad what is it with this guy you know what is it it's hard to say what it is I mean there's there's a combination of of things that go into a guy like his playing and one of it one of them is it doesn't matter the distance between any two of his notes. That once he establishes that first note, the second note is going to be right where you want it to be and right where you're hoping it's going to be and right where you feel like you, you yourself, right where you feel it. Somehow it's going to be at that place. So that gives you the ability to really land together, you know. And once you understand that about Steve Gadd, your job becomes so easy because he just puts it down in that place that you want it to be, you know. And I remember there was a session, there was many sessions, but there was one in particular where he didn't come in for a long time. He, he didn't show up for the, for the date for a long time. And we sat around trying to get our parts together. And man, I couldn't come up with anything for this particular song. But the second he showed up and sat down in that, on that drummer's stool, counted it off and started to play, 
my shit came like instantly. Mm -hmm. I knew exactly what to play. You know, my part made me, he made me sound like a genius all of a sudden. And before I was fishing and nothing worked. And like, what am I doing? And what's my, why am I even here? And they should have called somebody who can play. I can't play, you know. But <laughs> if man. You, if you had to think of a, a signature um, track that you and Gad did together, I'm sure there are many, but something that pops into your head, or one or two or well, something. There's, that... there's, there was a thing that most people don't even know about. And it was really um, an obscure record that we both, you know, it's really the only record that we ever sat down and, and and listened to again and again together after it was said and after it was all done. We never really returned to any of our other stuff that we ever did. But there's this one project. It was the Manhattan, uh, uh, the New York Community Choir. And it was a gospel record, and it was it was arranged by Leon Pendarvis, and Richard T was on. I was on. Jeff Miranoff, I think, played most of the guitar. And there were two albums. And Steve and I were the rhythm section, were the were the bass and drums for that for that stuff. And man, we just love going back and listening to that stuff. It's awesome. I wonder There's, if I could find that. Yeah, you can find okay. it here and there. There's one song. I think it's called. Uh, not either express yourself or release yourself. Yeah, it's okay. really killing. It's killing. <laughs> other signature um, grooves that you've done with Gad? Like, if well, you, you know, I mean, this got way overused. I mean, we, we sat down and we would, we would play these grooves that just sounded like this, you know. Yeah. That's on his instructional right? video, yeah. That's even on the, yeah. <laughs> it even made it to the video. Yeah. But, you know, whatever that is, that became like, I keep forgetting nothing up anymore. Yeah, yeah. I keep Whatever. I'm way out of tune. Anyway, so that was like a, a signature Steve thing. I don't know where that started. I don't know if it started with stuff. I don't know it sounds so New Steve. York, man. When you hear that, it's like yeah. it sounds New York. It turned yeah. into, it became quite a cliche. I mean, you want to avoid it as much yeah. as, as, much as yeah. You know, I guess there's a lot of records where that shows up. Uh -huh. you know, I don't know where we placed it. We put it here and there, and then I think we put it on some Alessi stuff and maybe some, uh, I don't even know. I just keep remembering that, okay, we did that already. We got to do something else. Another record I had that I wore out was Hearts and Numbers. Mm. One of my favorites. It had Don some drummers Grohl, on there. Two drummers at one time. Mm. Was it Erskine and Human Steve? Human It was Steve Jordan, right? Yeah. Human yeah, the yeah. drums were panned, hard right and left. And But the signature, man, of all of, all of that stuff, um, for me, like when I think of one of your tracks, is Pools. Mm. That bass part, which maybe it was even written, I don't know, but the way you played it. Yeah, it, it was written. Yeah, the way you played it, it's killer. I wish I could have played yeah. it better. 
that's it's because nobody tra- felt it the way Gronick felt it. He just had this great ability to uh, to uh, phrase things, and and he wrote the song around boop 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 boop, and where mm-hmm. he put that boop 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 was in such a place that it still I, I I find it challenging to try to to try to emulate him doing it. He he taught me how to play triplets. Triplets is a is a is a really special area that people really don't. Not many people know how to play a triplet, and triplets get confused with like if you're in a in a um, a tempo that's like say uh, right right the temptation to play a triplet. A lot of people will want to play something that's 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 like not a triplet, but more like. Boom, 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 right? Boom. Quarter boom, note triplet boom, with boom, an accent boom, on something. Almost like yeah, that. Straight. Which is nothing like tri- what a triplet is, because a triplet is an even thing. And Gronick mm. taught me how to, like, like I'm going to hold my, my, one, my, my left hand about eight inches above my knee, and I'm going to play on my knee the Gronick triplet. And you got you to, gotta like, use your hand to play, to go back and forth between that, that hand that's hovering over the knee and the knee. And it would be like... Ah. So you got to have that... Gotta, 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 gotta. You got to have that secondary... You got to have that secondary slap in between the triplets to let you know that you're doing it evenly. I see. Right? Yeah. So he he's the guy that taught me how to really feel a triplet well, you know, instead of mistakenly mistakenly playing it that other way. That 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 that. Yeah. Dagga 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 dagga. Nice and round, you know. And that kind of and just the feeling of that can really sum up Gronick's whole lifestyle in a way, his whole musical lifestyle because he he really you know everything about his musical choices was was so natural and so unforced and so unpretentious i mean james taylor called him the truth hmm. when james taylor spoke about him he would say i looked to gronick for the truth you know because gronick was always about i mean he could bullshit but not in a way that was he wasn't he wasn't skirting the issue he was mm-hmm. just he would do it for a laugh or for whatever but when it got down to business, Gronick always knew what was right or wrong about stuff, especially music, you know? Wow. That's yeah, a just very great, special great guy. story, man. Mr. Natural. I love that record, Hearts and Numbers. You guys check that record out. It's classic. I love the song uh, Four Sleepers on yeah. it. I didn't play it. I think Marcus played on that. But boy, that's my favorite. When Gronick. you cut that, that record did, uh, on the sessions, were they tracking with two drummers? Or was it overdose? I think so. I yeah. think they were both there. I have to be yeah. in an interplay like that. I remember somebody told me they had done a session with Steve Jordan once, and he said, man, he, he never, like, he just played straight time. He didn't play a fill. He didn't even hit a crash cymbal, nothing. Like, three minutes into the tune, the tune's almost over, and he does his fill, hits a crash, and everybody's like, wow! You know, <laughs> it's just... And it really means something Really meant point. something, Yeah. yeah. You know, a lot of bass players too. I, it's um, the note duration and the way people hold the notes yeah, out, even a important. simple part. It's like you know, it's sort of like analogous to taking a dart and throwing. You know, 
landing it the right way. Yeah, when I mean, you, you let go of the note, that has a really strong feel to it. Yeah. Yeah, so you're, that's, impo- that's and, an important part of the groove. Mm-hmm. So you're conscious of that all the time. I mean, you don't, you, you don't have to think about this stuff anymore. It's just innate at this point, but... Um, I do. I mean, I, I love when writers, when, when arrangers write out a chart and they have the note length like spelled out for you so you can, can know exactly what their intent is. They'll have a long mark over it mm-hmm. or a short mark over it or, you know, they'll say, you know, they, they'll want it either full value and, or, or they'll write out exactly when they want you to release it and stuff by putting rests in mm-hmm. the way. Because that's such an important part of... You know, music, I think a lot about a guy, you know, Tom Wolk. Yeah, you know, T-Bone. He, he comes a, up in every episode. <laughs> People well, bring him up on every episode. He was a wonder, man. He was yeah. an amazing guy with all that stuff we're talking about. And you got him his first recording session. <laughs> yeah, inadvertently, mm-hmm. just by not showing up and not being able to do it. I ended up singing on the thing. And when I came in later to, to sing it, and I go, well, how'd the guy do? And I listened to his track, and I said... What am I hearing? Can you solo that for me? <laughs> what is that gorgeous sound? I couldn't believe it, you know. Wow. I couldn't believe like everything about it was exactly what I would have wanted to do if I could have done it, and I still don't know how to do it, but Really? Yeah, I mean, it was so beautiful. What tra- what was that session? Was Commercial. it just a little jingle thing? Yeah. 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 I know you and Hiram Bullock, man, had this like connection, you know. And what do you think? Besides him being an awesome musician overall, I mean, what what made it click? Do you think? What did you like about? You know, Hiram. Um, in in Hiram's case, he uh, had such a ridiculously huge vocabulary of music, and great, you know, of course, obviously, great facility on the instrument on guitar, uh, but. You know, a great command of that instrument and great control over it. But he could play anything that he heard, you know. And and the reason that he heard a lot of stuff was that he had this huge dictionary, this huge vocabulary to choose from. And he was probably, and I don't want to sound racist here, but I've mm-hmm. said this a million times in public, that Hiram was probably the only African-American that I ever knew recite the entire Crosby, Stills, and Nash songbook, note for note, lyric for lyric, Mm -hmm. the entire Steely Dan songbook, the entire, um, uh, you know, real book, Bebop, with all the lyrics and all the chords. And I'm talking about not only guitar, but could sit at the piano and do this as well, which is, to me, unbelievable. I mean, I would die to be able to do that. Plus, you know, every crazy bebop thing and you know he fit right into the jocko band perfectly because he was had he could get as crazy as as anybody he played with and his the Hiram Bullock stage that that if you were invited to be on it if you were part of the Hiram Bullock realm that was an open um it was open season for creativity you know, he just let anything be anything and you could play anything and he could make music out of your most mundane idea. You could make a mistake <laughs> and he would turn that into a thing because his vocabulary allowed him to, you know, he had so much reference to, to bounce off of musically that he could give your lamest crap validity. Life, yeah. It yeah, became something. it was incredible. You know, and a guy like the late Lou, Lou Soloff, um, a big piece of him went away when Hiram passed 
when Hiram died. Hiram went away, and now Lou Soloff didn't have that playground that he once had to, to go and make this instant music. And a, a, and a, a lot of this came from Gil, Gil Evans' influence, too. Gil Evans had told Lou Soloff there are no wrong notes, you know, and, and Lou took that. He took that to Religion, heart. Religion, yeah. You know, he just let anything happen. Anything could fly with Lou. When Lou got on stage to play with you, you weren't, you weren't, you were going to stop what you were doing, and you were going to pay attention to that guy that just got up on that stage because he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to leave you alone. You know, if I'm talking to an audience member. Mm-hmm. Being on stage was a whole other thing. You were like, oh shit, here we go. But the audience was like, whoa, that's cool. You know, so you had to just go with it because he was going to go take you to some place that you didn't think you were going to go to. And because Hiram was the way he was, that was the perfect scenario for a guy like Lou Soloff to walk in on. So that for that reason, he would sit in with us a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, even went to Japan with us a couple of times, you know, and it was always magic. It was always really cool. I have that Give It What You Got record. <laughs> that was an Atlantic thing. Yeah, that was Atlantic, one of these two yeah. Atlantic records, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. And I think I told you once I have uh, something else you played on that's uh, Ray Gomez. Yeah, volume, That's a great right? record. Yeah. Ray's a ridiculous That player, guy is man. such an unsung guitar god, man. I mean, I don't know why he's not famous, you know? Well, I know why. I mean, why is it... All, there's a lot of great players, but you, you listen to him and you're like, shit, this guy's a great singer, too. I was going to ask you earlier when we were talking about Hiram, during that period, or even before, when you came for Dreams and all, during that period, did did you ever run into, I'm, I'm sure you did, but did you ever, do you have any Jocko stories or any, did, did he hang out at gigs or crash gigs? or? Absolutely, guys? man. He was just the sweetest guy, you know? I mean, to see him play live, a lot of times he would come in and just crash your gig. Like, used to drive Mac Revenant crazy yeah, and he would he just sh- show up on stage with us he would be oh boy here we go <laughs> he even wrote a song about it on on a Jocko tribute record that we did after his death really yeah it was hilarious i mean he just spilled his guts out about you know he'd just show up anywhere and, uh, mac step, did step on your gig you know that was a, kind of in the lyrics uh but you know he was the sweetest sweetest soul and he was always really encouraging to me about my playing. I could have easily just folded it as soon as he walked in the door, but he didn't let me. But you were a Florida boy too, you know? Yeah, so. but I didn't know him until after I left. I'd never heard of him until after I was gone. Ah. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden there was this buzz. Hey, Jocko. But Jocko. still, you were in New York. You were Florida boy still to him. You know, you're, where are you from? Florida. Maybe, oh, cool. and he loved my dad. It was you know? probably that, yeah. I my mean, dad. you're playing, obviously, too, but that... The camaraderie of the southern thing. Yeah, probably. we both like the same kind of stuff, <laughs> music and stuff. But he, uh, I got this call from my dad about a year or two after I left Miami. And this is when Jocko was starting to get really hot down in Florida. Um, my dad called me up and said, hey, man, I'm going to start the, because my dad was dean of the University of Miami School of Music at this yeah. time. And he was putting the faculty together and he was creating all the programs. He was. He started the music engineering program, and he started the 
music merchandising was a was a thing that you could get a degree in all kinds of creative stuff and one of them was they did hadn't had an electric bass department but he was going to start one and asked me if I would be the head of the electric bass department and I said well dad man I'm kind of killing it up here in New York I got to say no I don't want to move back you know so he calls Jocko and Jocko wow. was that guy he was wow. the first head of the electric bass department University of Miami I didn't, I, I didn't know him. that's how it all happened. Yeah. You, you were, that's funny, man. That's how that part of it happened. That's how he knows knew my dad. Wow. And the, funny, the funniest thing about that whole Jocko being the head of the base department thing is, and I've heard it from, different, from three different guys that, that were in his, that were underneath, under Jocko in his, you know, teachings there. And they would have lessons with him. And everybody tells the same story. Mark Egan. Frank Gravis, another New York bassist, that these are these had all been University of Miami guys, and Hiram, they all took lessons from Jocko during that his tenure at or during his run of being the head of the electric bass department. You go into the room, and he would say, "Okay, play this groove," man, and he and he would have you play something, you know, probably something like the chicken. And he would, and you would play that, and he would solo for an hour. <laughs> and that was the last. <laughs> okay, see you next week, man. Which is pretty funny, but it has to be the most valuable lesson for a bassist because that's your gig. Yeah. Yeah. It's to do that while the music's playing, you know. That is the actual. The gig isn't, you know, the gig isn't the solo stuff. No. The gig is playing bass. So not only did you get a lesson in, in how to keep keep and hold a groove for an hour, you got to hear Jaco Pastorius in person for one hour. Yeah. See you next Holy week. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> to have been a fly on that wall. <laughs> Speaking of fly, Nightfly. I didn't ask you about Nightfly. Classic re- record, man. Do you have any favorite a favorite track on that? Oh God. I, I don't I don't have the song list in front of me, but. Every every song on that is yeah, a that's just when I'm like, listening to that record, you know, and and many you can say that about a lot of the Steely records, they just sound so timeless because they were recorded so meticulously and they still sound fresh for that reason, you know. But the Nightfly that that was done was that done in L.A. That, was that you and Gad or is that Picaro? that song? The, the the whole record. Oh, I just every it was all piecemeal, you know. Okay. They would take a piece of yeah, like Steely Dan. They would take a Steve piece. Jordan bass drum and mix it with a. Wow. A Jeff hi hat and and put it through the window or whatever, and next thing you know, you had a drum track that was mm. kind of like every note was produced, yeah, and carefully, you know, separated out and put in. Um, anyway, my my only experience, I mean, I, I came in and did that one song, um, "Walk Between the Raindrops," you know, super yep. muted. Yeah. Came in again to, to do Ruby Baby, yep. you know, and I and I yep. came in and I played, uh, whatever. Ah, uh, help, 
Help me, help me. What key? We're in G, right? So I was thumbing it. I was in the control room thumbing it. And anytime anybody would hear uh, any kind of fret sound or anything in the studio, a hand would fly up and it would go back to the beginning of the song. You'd have to play the whole, they, they couldn't just punch it in. <laughs> and they would hear, if they heard anything, oh, hand would fly up, go back to the beginning. <laughs> shit my bad i should have been out in the studio doing this they wouldn't have heard any of that stuff but they were going this went on for three days at the end of the third day i said guys you got it i can't keep doing this i was going insane so i i walked out on, on that session and anthony jackson came in or whatever <laughs> played it with his fingers fine next I don't. I could have taken him a week. I have no idea, but I lost it. But but the other thing had been a breeze, you know, the walk between the raindrops. Man, that, those those are like legendary. <laughs> those Steely Dan stories are legendary for taking being super meticulous and picky and kind of jumping around. But you always strike me as a kind of guy who's you know you're always very up and positive and you're a very forward-thinking guy and a lot of people since i've been in new york they everything is about the past you know that's not like it was that's not like oh man you should have been here oh you missed this. i hate that yeah so i want to get your take on on because you were here in the quote heyday whatever six sessions a day whatever you guys were doing for years I, you know everybody knows all those stories what's your attitude on that now like uh, i guess the question would be um you don't ruminate on the past in, in those days. I mean, would, are you? if there was somebody that was going to move to New York now, would you encourage it or would you just, you know, tell them to be cautious or? It depends on what the they scene. wanted to do, you know. If they wanted to be a studio musician, I would mm -hmm. just laugh because, right. you know, of course, I would laugh at myself if I said I want to be a studio musician <laughs> at this point because there's no such thing. So everything's a one-off, basically, unless you start a thing that gets that starts to catch on with the with the public and and it gets momentum, you know, mm -hmm. like a band or something. Mm -hmm. And um, I never looked back. I mean, I never as as much as I I talk about the Beatles and and uh, all that kind of stuff. I'm not wishing things were the way they were ever. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like looking ahead because that's how things get done. You know, mm -hmm. I mean. Um, the reason I, I started the, the Fab Faux, this, the Beatles band, wasn't because I wanted to have an oldies band or I wanted to have a cover band of any kind. I just liked the Beatles music so much that I think, for me, I think that the Beatles music is is so important, and I and I know it is, and I and I know why it is, and it it informed all this other stuff that's happened ever since. You know, like you said with the. With you, you can hear you can hear it in pop music mm -hmm. all the time, mm -hmm. and you can't say that about a lot of other other bands' stuff. As much as you may like the Stones, as much as you might like Elton John or, or anybody else you can think of, you know, there's nothing that really has has really steered the course of mighty rivers the way all right. the way the Beatles' music did. You know, yep. I had when I was at 11 years old at the time when the Beatles did the Ed Sullivan Show. I remember um, I had a girlfriend, 
back in Texas, and her name was Anita. And uh, at one point, it got to, it got to the point where she saw that I was so obsessed with the Beatles. She said, "All right, is it me or the Beatles?" <laughs> and, I, and I said, "Well, <laughs> you're amazing." <laughs> However. <laughs> If I have to make a choice, you know. Yeah, it's just no. Uh, I couldn't just ignore do you have the a Beatles. Hoffner? Do you do you have a Hofner? Impression. Impression yeah. for days. I was convinced that the song she said, she said. Uh huh. You know, you know that one. Yeah. Yeah. She said. Yeah. I know. I was trying. I was thinking. Okay, he's playing it with his hands. Because every cymbal hit just like... Yeah, they're real... Yeah, not, not like washy. They bloom, yeah. they're like To the point where I was trying to get Fab Fo, I was trying to get our drummer to do it with his hands. And I called up, I said... I called up Mark Hudson, you know that guy? He was producing Ringo at the time, anyway. The I producer... Said, yeah, yeah, the guy with the, like, the multicolored, multicolored thing. Yeah. yeah. And I said, hey, man, can you do me a favor? Just lean over. Would you ask... <laughs> Slayer. I'll I said, you. can you ask Ringo... Did he play that with his hands? Sticks. I heard it from the background. Okay, I lost that argument. <laughs> Thank you, Will, for doing this. Thank you so much, Shane. The pleasure, man. I'm glad we could finally do it. I know. Well, thank you for making the time, man. You want to just play us out? We'll play something in a groove. Anything. You know what? I'd like to just play some bebop. What do you want to play? play? Some blues? Yeah. What key? Just a B-flat blues. Sure. Kind of smoky in here. Yeah. yeah. I feel like putting velvet, my pajamas man. on, man. The red velvet, velvet couch. Yeah, ain't nothing but the blues. Nothing but the blues. Nothing but the blues. <laughs> nothing but the blues. Oh, I got nothing but the blues, and I'm afraid of you. I always wanted to play upright, but no, without an upright. <laughs> Pretty convincing, man.
walking around the block, man. Just walking the dog. Just walking the dog. Just walking the dog. Good night. Cool, man. Thank you, Will. Yeah, baby. All right. Thanks for listening. If you want more, there's one more little clip where Will talks about some uh, some tips for a special interest to musicians trying to create a scene. Uh, it's just so much great stuff. I just wanted to include it. Again, all I ask is you please leave me a good review on iTunes. You know, spread the word. I don't try to make any money on any of these podcasts or anything. Uh, but they are a ton of work to do. So I love hearing from you guys. And I will shamelessly plug my new record. It's called Still Motion. It's available CD Baby, iTunes, and Amazon, and my website, shaneterio.com. Once again, thanks to Will Lee. And thank you for listening. Bonus coming up. I don't want people to hear it and go, you interviewed Will Lee and you didn't ask him, blah, blah, blah. You know. Well, let me think if there's anything that I should... I mean, we laughed at people who th- who uh, said they wanted to be, be studio musicians in New York, but that's not very nice. <laughs> studio musicians anywhere, really, unless right. maybe Nashville, maybe. I don't know. Still things... Oh, you were talking... I wanted to talk about David Garfield a little bit. Sure, man. Go for because it. Because David Garfield... Um, you know, you mentioned that, that Tribute to Jeff album... Yes. All right. Yep. Are we rolling? Yeah. Okay. Put away the cue cards. I don't need the cue cards for this. <laughs> I'm just going to improvise. Um, David Garfield is one, is this guy who I always like to refer to when everybody when any whenever anybody says you know how do I get a gig how do I make it in the music business well first of all Hiram Bullock said if you want to make money be a banker if you do music for the money boy that's can that backfire on you? You know, that's a really crazy sure. idea. Yeah. But uh, it's possible that you can make money in music, but it's not its not the norm, you know. But David Garfield is a guy from, from uh, St. Louis, Missouri, who somehow made his way to L.A., <clears throat> didn't really know the guys, knew who the guys were, and would put together these projects, you know, he would call, because you know musicians, we're we're hoes, you know. We we want to play. We're ho- we're hoes. We just want to fucking play. Right. So get you know, set me up, and I'll and count it off, and I'll start playing, basically, right. So he would call like, Vinny Calyuta. Hey man, are you free to do a thing? Blah blah blah. Vinny go, yeah, sure. Who, are you gonna, who else are you going to call? And he would say, I don't know. I'm going to call blah, 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 blah. And then we'd call up Luke at there. Hey, Steve, Steve, can you do a thing? You know, Are you available on such and such a night? Vinny wants to do it, so blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, he's gone from like, who the hell is, uh, who's David Garfield to like, hey, I'm doing that David Garfield gig, you know. <laughs> oh, me too, whatever. And, and then, you know, next thing you know, he would start like, he was because he would start calling the guys that he wanted to play with, you know, he would start a little network going. And now he's in the network. 
you know. And now people know who David Garfield is, you know, fast forward to today. And it's because he, he not only created like gigs, for instance, the tribute to Jeff, that was a big thing. Everybody came on board. Yeah. He does a yearly uh, Carlos Vega memorial sh gig in, in L.A. He's been doing it for, I don't know, ever since Carlos passed, you know. I mean, he he's a very, very sensitive guy who, you know, uh, and he doesn't do it. He's not motivated because, you know, oh, let me take, let me be like an ambulance chaser and take advantage of somebody's death. You know, that's the worst way to look at it. But he would be able to, to find a common thing that would pull at people's heartstrings the way his heartstrings were being pulled on when somebody passed away. So a guy like Carlos is very beloved. Jeff Percaro, very beloved. And so people would want to come together and he would be sort of the conduit that would get people to show up at a place where they could all spill their, their hearts out for, for the loss of somebody, you know. So that was one one example of like a guy who was resourceful enough to bring people together and get himself as part of the scene you know that i don't know how how you can exactly say that's what's going to happen but that's ended up being what happened for him you know mm -hmm. he now he's part of the scene he created his own opportunity he didn't wait for the phone to yeah. ring in other words yeah. you know what i mean so you got to go out if you want to do get a scene happening sometimes you have to become the motivator you know, you know, you can't always just be the guy. Oh, Jesus! I'm not getting any work. You got to make it happen sometimes. Yeah. You know, and it's it's doable. It's very possible to to get a thing started and, and just do something. Just do something. Get up and do something. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> no, man. I, I think that's good advice, though, because, you know, I get guys ask me sometimes, too, what should I do? What should I do? You know, I just moved here and I go, well, do you ever think about putting your own thing together and maybe put a little money into it at first, but hire X and Y and blah, 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 because then you become a guy. You're not like you said, you're not waiting around. Yeah, invest and then, in yourself. Then the other musicians are like, oh, all of a sudden you're in charge because you're getting guys work. You know, so you you're looked up, you're looked at from a different angle, a favorable angle, rather than oh, this guy's hounding me for a gig again. You're creating, you're giving them gigs. You know, right? It's a, it's a good strategy to have. Yeah, I think as a musician nowadays, especially. Yeah, because you got to get something happening. I mean, you love music, you want to be a part of it, you want to play, you want to keep your chops up. You know, you want to you want to communicate with other humans. You want to, if you have anything at all to say, you want to have an audience to that wants to hear what you have to say so part of your get just getting your craft together and shedding or loving music in the first place is getting out there and expressing something and there are multiple ways to do it and maybe the studio scene is not one of them and as like it used to be mm -hmm. you know but there are scenes mm-hmm 